Good Friday service. Good Friday services are this Friday, uh, 7 p.m. and 8 p.m. Uh, they're going to be short and sweet and to the point. And so, if whatever one works for you, go ahead and come to that. We started doing two Good Friday services because we couldn't fit everybody into one. So, and then it kind of gives you guys, if you get off work later or something like that, you can still come to one. Good Friday is a great service if you're a believer to come and get some reflection on who Jesus is and and our lives and what they look like in the in the sense of what He's done. It's great reflection, uh, and it's a good time to. I think, uh, have a place of remorse for our sin and our lives and things that we've done <clears throat> against him. And so, as I always say, Good Friday, if you are looking to invite one of your friends to that's never been to a church before, don't invite them to Good Friday. I know it's a short service. They might enjoy it that it's short, but they're not going to enjoy that service. <laughs> okay. Um, Easter, we have four services. We have a Saturday night at 6 p.m., which is, it's geared for anybody who wants to come, but if you're planning to help out, Easter Sunday morning somewhere, or maybe you just don't like the hassle and the bustle, you can come to the Saturday night one at 6 o'clock. There's going to be nursery care only available at that one. And then we have our three normal ones, 8, 15, 9, 30, and 11. And there's full child care at all three of those, so any of those full child, full child care. Uh, what else do I got? Oh, uh, planting roots update. This is where we're at. We're 83% of the way through the journey of pledges. Uh, people made pledges to have given. We are 66%. So you guys are like just falling off the wagon at this point. And then uh, with all that's come in, we're 73% of that 83%. So I think that's all I got. Why don't you stand? We started late, so I want to get going. Stand me for reading God's word. Matthew, Mikey this week goes, yeah, you're horrible at doing announcements. And I'm like, I know, I know. Uh, Matthew 9.35 says, And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. Let's pray. Thought of this morning, I asked that you would teach us what it means to be a people who follow in the ways that you walked, that we would listen to you, that we would go where you call us to go, that we'd stay when you call us to stay. And that we would honor you where we are, that we would, we would speak out about the great things that you have done and understand ourselves as being sent on your mission in this world to live and show who you are because of the great grace you have given us. Amen. Have a seat. I was talking to a friend of mine last week at the end of second service and he says, you know, I feel like you end your messages right when you start to get going. He goes, they need to be longer. And I thought, not many people ever say that to me. I could make them longer if I just talk slower, so maybe I'll try that, see what happens. Uh, this is the last week of our series, Through the Gospels of Matthew, verses, or chapter 8 and 9. We're calling it Authority. We did that not based on an old South Park ca- cartoon where it says, Respect my authority, if anybody knows that, uh, but on the verses in the Sermon on the Mount where it says, Matthew seven twenty-eight and 29, And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he is teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. And so Jesus goes on in Matthew 8 and 9 to show that he had the authority to say the things that he did by doing the things that he did. So if anybody doubted, Matthew shows that Jesus had the authority to say these things. So we have seen Jesus show authority over sickness, relationships, calling disciples, spiritual force, over life and death, and today we're going to see that Jesus has authority to call us out and send us on mission. It becomes part of who we're meant to be, it's part of our wholeness and who he is, and so I I kind of went back and forth on what to call the message today, like authority to mission or authority to wholeness, because authority to mission sounds like a Tom Cruise movie, but authority to wholeness sounds like a breakfast cereal. So I went with authority to mission. Uh, And this is bigger than we can imagine, so open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 9, verse 35. 
And, you know, if you haven't been here when I talked about this before, a lot of people say, well, this is a church. Shouldn't Jesus' authority simply be a given? Well, for a lot of people, the answer is yes from their lips, but a no from how we actually live our lives. Like, I don't always want to live under Jesus' authority. I fight and buck against it in my own life. But whenever I live under my own authority, I always mess things up. Always, always, because I'm not a good God. So this is how Matthew rounds out his messages on Jesus' authority. Matthew 9, 35 to 38. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out his laborers into the harvest. And so what you see through Matthew 8 and 9 is this authority, 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 authority. And then last week you see the religious leaders mock Jesus for that authority. And then Matthew just moves on from that and he shows authority and I'm going to send you out as laborers into this vineyard. Now last year we went through the first half of the book of Acts. It was like weeks and weeks. Actually, it was months and months. We went through the first half of the book of Acts. And I reminded you almost every week of Jesus' call to mission in our lives. And disciples are meant to be messengers. Every disciple of Jesus is given a message to publicly communicate about the grace and the goodness and the gospel, urging everyone to believe it. There is no other pressing issue than the glory of God in our lives, and by living on mission, we bring glory to God. In the book Center Church, Tim Keller sarcastically says, well, is that even legitimate to do? Talking about spreading the message of the gospel. Because in our culture, we are told you shouldn't do that. Don't talk about Jesus. Really, in our culture, it's don't be radical about anything unless it's a celebrity, then it's okay. Then you're not a weirdo, but yeah. Here, Jesus gives every single one of his disciples, and that would include all of us in this room, if you follow Jesus, he gives us a mission, a message, and a motivation. That's what Keller calls them. I liked it, so I stole it. Uh, you really see this gain traction in the book of Acts. In Acts 1-4, Jesus says to his disciples, go into Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. Essentially, this is Everywhere in the world you are called to go out to. And so in Matthew 9, when he says, pray to the Lord of the harvest and send laborers into the harvest, where Jesus goes in Matthew 10 is to show that those laborers you're praying for to go out into the harvest are actually you. You pray, God, send me. God, bring someone to talk to my friend. And God's like, I did. You. Like, somebody else. Somebody else, I'll bring them to church and Aaron can tell them. No, he sent you into their lives to be that person on mission. So Jesus tells his disciples on multiple occasions that God's spirit will come. God's spirit is going to reside in us for a specific purpose. In our day and age, when preachers talk about the Holy Spirit coming and residing in you, they say, well, it's to make you happy or to bless you or to give you exactly what you want. You hear this in churches all the time. This, Don't you want to be blessed? Don't you want to have money? Don't you want to be happy all, all the time? No. Why did God give the Spirit? Why did Jesus do this? It wasn't to make us comfortable. It was to give us power. Why was it going to give us power? So we could go out and live on mission with his strength in the world. That's why he gives the Spirit. He says, in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria to the end of the earth. This means the story does not end the moment you and I believe in Jesus. It's supposed to grow in and through us and go out past us when our lives are surrendered to Jesus. Just like you have not arrived the moment you say, I do, when you get married. I mean, imagine that someone gets married and they say, I do, and they go, shoot, all the work's over now. I got married. I said I do. And they never do anything to love or support their spouse again. How long would the marriage last? 
I know some of you guys are like apparently a long time. You know, <laughs> it wouldn't last, and you probably couldn't even call that a marriage. Just like the point of a relationship is not getting married, it is being married. The point of living and following Jesus is not becoming a Christian; it is. Being a Christian, living and following him, a disciple of Jesus. Jesus continually tells his disciples they are part of God's story. Jesus is not your co-pilot. Jesus is the pilot. If Jesus is merely your co-pilot, you're going to crash and burn every time, no matter how good your plane looks. The story doesn't end with you, it grows. And so Jesus names the local areas, the surrounding areas, and then the ends of all the world. When Jesus says in Judea and Samaria, he connects those two places together, this word in, Judea and Samaria. We're very far removed from this time, so when we read those words, we think, oh, that's the same place. That is not the same place. Those are two diametrically opposed places. I told you this back in the book of Acts. I'll try to make this short for you, just so you have an idea of what this means. Originally, Samaria was considered holy by the Jews because Jacob and Isaac, both patriarchs of the Jewish faith, built altars there to God. Jacob also had a, built a well there. He raised his family there. He deeds it to a guy named Joseph, who's the last figure you really see in the book of Genesis. In Joseph's story, he's sold into slavery. Through God's pr- crazy providence, he becomes the ruler of Egypt. Eventually, all of his family joins him there. And before Joseph dies, he gathers his family together and makes them promise him that when they get the heck out of Dodge, that Egypt, okay, Dodge's Egypt, they would take his bones and bury him back in this place in Samaria again in a town called Sychar. So you have the, you get out of the book of Genesis, the book of Exodus and, and Moses and, and all the signs and the cross and the Red Sea and the desert and the wilderness and coming into their country. And then you have them actually gain a kingdom and everything moves forward to about 720 B.C. When the Assyrians who hated the Jews invade this area, they conquer everyone. And as normally happens, if they don't kill you or deport you, if they leave you there, they leave you there to live off of you. They're trying to destroy your national identity. The people that remained in Israel after the Assyrians came in, 2 Kings 17 tells us that immediately they mixed themselves in the worship of the one true God with the Assyrians' gods so far as to involve child sacrifices. Now, over time, eventually the Jews get to return from where they were transported to. They get to come back to Israel. And when they get back, they're angry because they, when they were in exile, started to follow God more closely. They started to trust him even more in that place. And you get home, and the ones that got to stay behind, your your neighbors, offered their kids up in child sacrifice. Imagine it's World War II, and you get put into a labor camp. And eventually you get out and you go home and you find that your neighbors in Germany help put Jews into the ovens. How would you feel about your neighbors? You wouldn't be that happy about them. You think this is not right. So over time you read Ezra and Nehemiah, the Jews start to rebuild the wall and then their temple where they worship. And these Samaritans show up and they say, hey, we want to help rebuild it. And they say, no, you don't get to help. You are heretics and freaks and you did all this stuff. You don't get to touch the temple. And this leads to a lot of hostility between these two people. Then what happens is you have have a renegade Jew. He goes and he marries a Samaritan woman. And he says, we don't need that temple. We're going to go make our own temple. And they do this in a place called Mount Gerizim. So they make a hybrid religion with a different competing temple. And for the next 300 years, there's all this animosity. And eventually the Jews in Jerusalem get angry enough about this that they get a mob together. They storm up into Samaria through Sychar up to Mount Gerizim. And they destroy the Samaritan's temple in 120 B.C. How do the Samaritans feel about the Jews at this point? Not well. Not good, right? And so you get 120 years later, Jesus shows up. 
And these people, their hatred, it is deep. It is deep in who they are. If you were a good Jew and you were going to go from Judea to Galilee, you would go around Samaria. It would double the time of your trip because you did not want to go through it and come into contact with those people. This ethnic division, it is deep and profound. And Jesus says to those people that you can't stand or those people you know can't stand each other, that's where you go. Because he sees them all as lost people who need a shepherd. They are all lost because of their petty anger. Jesus lumps them together. You go to Trump and Clinton, both. You go to San Francisco and the Bible Belt, both. You go to the Dodgers and the Giants, both. You do both of those things. We are a people who always want to fight against Jesus' call in our lives to go because we think he doesn't understand those people, who those people are. We don't want to tell them about it. They wouldn't listen anyway. You know, and God says, no, I care about them and you need to go. We say, no, we go to the one we like, the one that's going to listen to us, the one that's not going to beat us up. And Jesus says, I am going to send the Spirit. He is going to give you power. The word for power is the word we get a word dynamite from. I'm going to give you power so you will be able to do this. You think you can't, but I will enable you to be able to do that. In Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria to the end of the earth, you will find yourself at the end of the earth with this message because you are the laborers that are supposed to be going out into the harvest. So he first talks about mission. Next chapter, Matthew 10, Jesus sends out his disciples to preach, to cast out demons, and to heal the sick. Preach means persuading of the truth. Cast out demons means to liberate people's souls from what enslaves them. Healing the sick means to actually mend bodies and souls. These are the things that Jesus did. And he calls his laborers to do those same things. Keller says this, He, that's Jesus, worked to mend the fabric of the world which is falling apart physically and sociologically. He brings people together. He brings bodies together. And if you just read the Sermon on the Mount and then Matthew 8 and 9, you'd be tempted to say, oh, look, Jesus does it all. I get to sit back and watch. He does everything. This is why Jesus says, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send laborers into his vineyard and moves directly into Matthew chapter 10, where the disciples are sent out with the message to go and talk to people. And it's why the Gospels end up moving into the book of Acts, where the church starts and these people are sent out. Today, 2 Corinthians 5.20, we are called Christ's ambassadors to the world. What does an ambassador do? They represent their country. Represent. They represent their country. In, in uh, 1 Peter 2.9, he calls us a royal priesthood. A priest was meant to bridge the divine where we would show who God is by how we live because we are all sent. The word send in Latin is the word mission. It's missio. It's missio. Everybody who comes into contact with Jesus, every disciple is on mission. We are sent. We are called not just to know God, but live intimately with him. To be a disciple means we go in and we experience that closeness, and we take that closeness back out. When we become intimate with God, when we are truly healed, when we are blessed to be what God calls us to be, we take that healing and that intimacy and that blessing back out again. God only brings us in and blesses us in order to send us back out to be a blessing. We are called to live for others in a way that sees their needs and their issues. It doesn't mean we always give everybody what they want. What we do is we want to bless their lives by giving them what we know they need, which is Jesus. So we speak about him and lift him up and live our lives in a way that they see who he really is. You got mission and then message. You got a message. Mission and message go hand in hand. We talk about what we know. What does that look like? That looks like your story. 
If you get baptized, an element, it, some people hate this, but we make you write down your story. You don't have to read it or, or talk about it when you're in the water. It's just so everybody can read what your story actually is because your story is important because it shows what Jesus does. Before I met Jesus, I was living as if I was my own savior. My best friend's name was Jack Daniels. And my favorite food was wild turkey. You know, and I thought I knew best how to live my life. I keep running it into the ground as well as other lives around me. I felt like I had to manufacture and produce and all my significance was based upon what I did. But it's always a losing battle inside because I knew my own inadequacy. I knew the more self-absorbed I came, the more I was running my life into the ground. But then Jesus found me. Jesus dealt with my shame. Jesus dealt with my insignificance and he called me his child. He provided for me. He brings satisfaction and deepest longing in my heart. And sometimes I don't always feel that because I stumble and I fall. But now I have no excuse for being self-centered and self-absorbed because my life is found in him. And I now have a mission and a purpose and it's higher and greater than anything I could have imagined. That's a story. That's a story. It's like the Blues Brothers. You know, we're on a mission from God. But you actually are. You know, they weren't, but you are. Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We are God's workmanship. The word workmanship is the word poema. We are God's poem. We are God's work of art, created to do good deeds. We are not just sent out in general. We are sent with particular things to do, particular people to help. We have been shaped to be God's messengers and instruments of healing in this world. That means we take all of our experiences in our lives, whether it's good or bad. We take our race and our age and our gender and all of those things go together to shape who we are, to be on mission with a message. There are certain people that God has placed in your life that you are meant to be the healing agent of grace in their lives. Keller points out that the reigning worldview in our culture today is that biological life is an accident, and therefore there is no rhyme or reason to it, that we're not here for any purpose. The German philosopher Martin Heidegger called it Georfenheit, and I don't speak German, so I probably just butchered it, but that's his word, and that word means Thronness. It means thrownness. That we have been thrown into the world and there's no reason for us really to be here. He said, the most thought-provoking thing in our thought-provoking time is that we are still not thinking. He's just a weird dude, okay? But you're thrown. Jesus says, you are not thrown. You are not thrown. You are sent. You are sent. There is purpose behind why you are here. There's a purpose behind why I save you and give you power. Being sent is the mark of our life because everyone has a message and a mission. We are sent with the message of Jesus. We are sent to be good neighbors. Neighbors that, who bring over the best cookies to our neighbors around us. We're meant to care about our communities. We're meant to care about the basic needs of the hurting. We're meant to know that we are laborers in that vineyard. Matthew 10, 7, Jesus says for his disciples, tell everyone the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Every single disciple has a message. The kingdom of heaven has come near in the person of Jesus, and everyone needs to believe this. And I know that's, again, the rub in our culture today. Because a lot of people say, I don't have any problem with Christianity. Whatever problem is with that, they want to shove it down everybody's throats. We don't want to shove it down everybody's throats. We want to live in a way that people see the goodness and the grace of God and say, would you believe this too? Would you live in his goodness of his reconciliation of who he is? Jesus sends us into the world to communicate what he calls the gospel The good news of what he has done. We declare it to every creature. 
The word gospel, it means good news. But when the word is chosen by the early church to be used of this, it had a very specific meaning. The gospel was an objective, history-changing event that changed everyone's situation, and everybody needed to respond to it. A gospel is an announcement, an announcement of good news. The most famous example of this is in 490 B.C. It's what's called the Battle of Marathon. Now, the Persians are invading Greece. The Athenian army goes out to meet them on the plains of Marathon. They're going to battle against the Persians. Everyone expected the Persians to win. So back in Athens, everybody's freaking out. There's riots in the street. People don't know what to do. They're going to, as soon as they break through those enemy lines, they're going, to, they're going to be defenseless. They're going to come in. They're going to kill everybody. But to everyone's surprise, the Athenians win. The Athenians win. They defeat Persia. And as soon as they win, they realize we got to communicate the gospel, this announcement of this good news, of this life-changing message that has just changed everyone's situation back in Athens because they're all freaking out. So they send a single runner all the way back from Marathon to Athens. That's where we get our modern marathon distance from. He runs all the way to the city, and when he gets there, all he is able to do is cry out, rejoice, we've triumphed, and he falls down dead from the run, which is what everyone should do at the end of a marathon. I run a mile, and I'm like, yeah, it's time to drop down dead right now. But he runs in and says this. So they stop because there's an announcement, and this changes your life because there is good news. When Jesus said, go proclaim the gospel to everyone in creation, do you know any of the enormity of that statement? The gospel is not advice on how to live or even here's so you can find God. The gospel is a history-changing, momentous event that changes a situation for everyone in the world. All of our lives can now be changed. In Jesus, the kingdom of God is coming near. And if you reject him, history is going to leave you behind. For us, it'd be like finding the cure for cancer. And we say, oh, no, 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 I am just going to keep this in my family, or I'm going to give it to my friends or the people I like. I'll heal them, but, but that's it. Nobody else needs to know about it. Or we're all into zombie shows nowadays, right? So what if, what if the zombie apocalypse happens, and you have a compound that's safe, and you have, like, food and weapons and supplies, and you don't let anybody else in? You're like, that'd be horrible. It'd be one of those wicked things you can do. I don't care what The Walking Dead says. That is, like, one of the most wicked things you can do. How about this? What do you do with your favorite band? You tell everybody about them. Have you heard them? Listen to this. A new CD. It's great. I downloaded this. Woo! And you tell everybody about it. And I know some of your country music lovers because you're always trying to play me your country music. It is not right. It is not funny. Okay? I borrowed my nephew's truck the other day when I got a flat tire. I get in the car, turn it on, country music playing. And I'm thinking, they just got to think this is funny. Because, whatever. So, you're always playing it for me. Why do we find it so easy to lift up broken and fallen men who play instruments and not the God who saved us? Why? Why is that? See, there is a message and a mission, but a lot of us don't have this proper motivation. Because I think we don't understand the gospel clearly. We have to understand that Jesus has given us a motivation to go out and talk about it. And sometimes we have a, a wrong motivation that can end up actually being destructive. We will have a good motivation when we understand the gospel better. In the gospel accounts, Jesus sends, sends his disciples out. When they return, after spending some time out telling others the good news of the kingdom, they're very excited. It's like, this is amazing, all these things are going on, people are healed, we're casting out demons, people believed. But Jesus says this in Luke ten twenty. He says, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. What he's telling them is, don't rejoice in your perceived position or perceived power. 
You rejoice because of what God has actually done for you. And I think in this, you see there's a kind of motivation for ministry and teaching that can actually be harmful. Where we say, oh look, I'm saved and you're not. So, it's, it's, it's where we get our bumper sticker theology and our t-shirt theology where non-Christians don't understand a word that's going on on our shirts or on our bumper stickers because we have this idea of privileged position. Not understanding that we have been blessed to be a blessing. And sometimes this can actually hurt and not help. We need to understand the see the hurting issues in our society. See, first, Jesus says, don't rejoice that the spirits are subject to you. He's not saying that that's not a good thing at all. I mean, for me personally, I would be really excited if I laid my hands on somebody and they were healed or demons would come out. It'd be a great party trick. I'd be like, hey, you want to see something? Watch this. Bam! Be like, woo! You know, oh, your dog's got a broken leg? Bring him to me. I'll show you something. Whoa, right? That, that, that's what I would do. This is what his disciples are saying. Wow, Lord, we're really something. Look at what we're doing. That would be me. But Jesus says, don't rejoice in that. He says, rejoice that your names are written in heaven. For our vernacular, this would mean rejoice because of what I have done for you, to bring you in. Having your names written in heaven is not like having your name written in the phone book. This was before the printing press or internet. And if your name was actually written somewhere, you were either a criminal or you were very important. And I think what is interesting about the gospel and Jesus is that we are both. We are both. We are criminals and yet we are very important to God. In most towns, there is a role, but only citizens were on the names of the role in those towns. It's a very small minority of the people. Jesus says, don't rejoice in your power or your gifts or your performance. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Rejoice in what I have done for you. Ancient people from many different cultures believed when Judgment Day came, there'd be these books and they'd be opened up and they would show all the things you've ever done. And if you had enough good deeds, well, then you would be able to have your name in the book of life. That's how religion works. You do a lot of good deeds, your name's in the book of life. If you didn't do enough, well, hey, there's another place for you. We won't talk about that, but that's where you're going to go. Jesus says, let me tell you what the gospel is. Let me tell you what the gospel is. The gospel is your name is already written down. Past tense. Past tense. Before your earthly life is over, before the foundation of the world, your name is written down. That's what it means. The gospel is don't rejoice in what you do. You rejoice in who you are in Jesus. The gospel is God has come and loved you and accepted you and drawn you in. You're already accepted by faith in him. Keller writes this. He said, the door on which you have been knocking all of your life and all the beauty you've ever sought, this is the beauty that Jesus offers. And all the love you've ever sought, this is the love you're after. And he says, that's heaven, not the place, not the place, but, the, but that our God welcomes us into the heart of all things. And if you are someone who rejoices in your own self-image, you are going to be all over the place. It's going to be, what do these people say about me? What does this person say about that? Do they not like my post on Facebook? Oh my goodness, what am I doing? I'm melting down. You're going to be all over the place. Because your life isn't found and settled in who Jesus is. Jesus says, rejoice who you are in me. And in that, you are absolutely secure. You can trust me. If you want a motivation that's always there, that's it. Right there. That's it. You have courage to speak the gospel regardless of what other people think. Because your name is written down in heaven because Jesus is the one who has drawn you in. That means you also get to become gentle and respectful when people disagree with you or even when they get hostile towards you because your name is written down because of what Jesus has done. 
Jesus then sends us on mission with the message. We have this proper motivation because we understand his authority over us, that he has already paid for us and that he has brought us and he has called his family. He has wanted us. He has remade us. You know what this also means? It means that there are going to be times in your lives when you talk to someone about the gospel who you would consider to be a better person than you. Happens to me all the time. Right? I find somebody I'm like, yeah, you're way more moral than I am. You're way more, yeah, all this. But, and sometimes you get scared to talk to those people because they have better character. But you don't have to be. You don't have to be because we are saved by grace. Salvation has nothing to do with how good of a person we are which means every shred of superiority that we feel like we have over other people should go away. We should be a humble people living in the grace of Jesus on mission as his laborers in the vineyards. And we go out healing, loving, serving, showing practical love whether people believe it or not, we continue to do it. Because we know that our salvation is not based in our works. It's based in his work and his authority that apply to us, and we give it to us so we can live in a way that brings salvation and understanding that to the entire world, that the gospel goes out. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Jesus, send laborers into his harvest. And he's like, yes, I have. That's you. That's you. Isn't it interesting? That as you go through the Sermon on the Mount about how it's supposed to change our entire lives, about blessing and that blessing going out, and you go into those next two chapters about all about Jesus' authority and how does he end it all. I'm sending you out to talk about this, to speak about this, because I have the authority to give you the strength to do so. I am the one who has rescued you and loved you. I am the one who will send you out. I am the one who will do all of these things. And then it directly goes in there to Matthew 10, where they get sent out. Matthew ends his gospel, going to all the world, discipling and baptizing people in all the world. That's how Matthew ends. And you jump into the book of Acts, and that's what the church goes out and do. And they stumble, and they fall, and they stumble, and they fall, and they stumble, and then they get up, and get up, and get up. And what happens? The church becomes what it is. And today is the church, yes, the church stumbles and falls because it's full of people just like us. And what does Jesus do? He calls us back in with his authority and says, look, I know you stumble and fall, but I love you, and I'm going to bring you back in, and I'm going to send you back out. doesn't matter how many times we stumble and fall, we are still sent back out again with our story. This is one of the reasons we talk about communion every week. We break that cracker like Christ's body is broken for us. You dip it in the wine of the grape juice. It reminds us that he is the one who has rescued and redeemed and removed all that stood between us and God and us and each other. That he is the one who has restored relationship through his own death and resurrection. And so we get to people, be a people as well in turn who get to go out and speak of that great message and tell everyone the goodness of our great God who has rescued us because we are the laborers in the vineyard. The band's going to come up. As they do, we invite you to take communion. Uh, there'll be some deacons in the back, and if you need prayer, uh, maybe you have somebody in your life that you know you're supposed to be talking to, and you, you're really afraid to do that. You don't know even how to begin the conversation. They'd love to pray with you about that. If you have anything in your life that you are going through you'd like somebody to pray with you about, they'd love to pray with you. There's offering boxes in the side wall in the back, and we give because God gave so much to us giving as part of our worship, so you have the opportunity every single week. Uh, there, we had a little mix-up apparently with food, so there's some granola bars in the back because we want to keep you regular. 
you want to grab something to eat, you can grab one of those. Hopefully, you will meet some other people and talk to them, build some relationships. So maybe during this week, you can come alongside one another and pray about maybe what, what hinders you from being sent out, what scares you the most. You know, what, what are the inappropriate ways that people have spread the message of Jesus and what are the appropriate ways? What, you know, wh- where are those things and what is the best way to do these things in each other's lives? Because we're supposed to come alongside one another. Part of our worship is how we live with one another. As we worship God in a myriad of ways and only one of them is singing songs. And so we want to be a people who go out as laborers in his vineyard because he sends us, and that is worship. So we live so the world would know the goodness of God. And I would encourage you at the end of Matthew 9 right now, I got one more week on authority next week. It's going to kind of tie in just a little bit. Um, but, But at the end of this, understanding that Jesus has sent us all out, and I would encourage you to be a people who live sent on mission. Let's pray. Father, this morning we ask that that you would remind us of our sentness. That we understand that your ways are good and your ways are pure and your ways are true. And what you call us into is beauty and grace. And sometimes that can actually be hard in our lives. Placing you first above all things can get difficult. But yet... You give us the power to live in your strength. It's not just that you say live in your strength. You say you will give us the power to actually do that. And that same power is the power that then sends us out to speak of the message that you have come near, that you have come to rescue. And so I would ask that you would remind us when we talk about the word mission to understand that it means sent and that we have all been sent Just like your disciples were sent, so are we. Even as messed up as we think that we are. Even as unuseful sometimes as we think that we are. We are sent. I ask that you would show us the people in our lives that we are supposed to be speaking to. And then hopefully we realize that is everyone that we come into contact in our lives. I ask that you would teach us to trust you. Trust your authority. Trust your grace. Trust the good news that has affected and changed who we are. Teach us to live and walk in your ways. We ask this in your son's good name. Amen.